This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. I might start off with the uh, Dharma talk, which is going to be basically just a bit of an introduction and background to uh, Charlotte Joker Beck, the teacher that we'll be focusing on for the first semester this year. Now, um, Joko started sitting in Zen practice in the 1960s. And uh, before the 60s, uh, Zen was not very well uh, known in the West, uh, apart from the writings of D.T. Suzuki and the popularization of the writings of D.T. Suzuki and the work of Alan Watts. And uh, this also uh, became part of what was known as the Beat uh, Movement in the USA in the 50s and early 60s. Uh, novelists such as Jack Kerouac and uh, poets such as Ginsberg embraced Zen Buddhism. Um, but they embraced only one side of Zen. They, they enjoyed the spontaneity of Zen and the iconicism of Zen and the, the transcendence of Zen, but uh, they weren't really into the discipline of Zen in terms of a regular daily practice. So it wasn't really until the middle 60s that uh, what we might describe as the first wave of Japanese Zen Buddhism came to the West and to America and spread slowly to Europe and, and Australia. And there was the three, three seminal texts and teachers that came out. Uh, the first one was The Three Pillars of Zen by a guy called Philip Kapler. Uh, that was published in 1965. Um, a book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Shonri Suzuki, which was published in 1970. And then a book called On Zen Practice, Body, Breath and Mind by Taizen Mazumi. Roshi, which was published in 1976. The book by Philip Kaplow, Kaplow was a Westerner who went to Japan, and that book was a representation of a Japanese Zen lineage known as the Harada Yasutani line lineage, um, which became a very, very influential Zen lineage in the West. It was unique because it was a lay lineage and it was a, a lineage work that integrated both what's known as the Rinzai and Soto sects or schools of Zen. The Rinzai being the Koan uh, Zen and the Soto being the just sitting Zen. So the uh, three pillars of Zen uh, and the particular school of Zen represented in that book was the Harada Yasutani one. And uh, a lot of Westerners were attracted to that particular representation of Zen because in that particular book there's about seven, chap uh, seven uh, yeah, chapters of uh, Zen practitioners or students who experience what's known in Zen as a Kensho 
uh, or Satori experience. And um, that can range from that sort of feeling of that oceanic feeling of oneness and perfection that can last for a, a few minutes or a few hours or a few days. And that was a, a very romantic version of Zen. But also the, the Zen that was represented in that book was a very, very disciplined Japanese Zen practice. And what we might call the first wave of Zen, really, that came to the West was the um, basically transplanting Japanese forms of Zen into the West. Um, so the, the second really influential book uh, and teacher, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, was by Shomu Suzuki. And that was, uh, Shomu Suzuki uh, was based in San Francisco and that became the leading school of Soto Zen in the United States. So, um, and then finally, there was another teacher, another Japanese teacher called Taizan Mazumi, who I'll say more about soon, who also came to the United States. And uh, Mazumi was quite unique in that he had uh, transmission from both uh, the Japanese Rinzai school and the Japanese Soto school. And, uh, and then he also trained in the Harada Yasutani line, so he had transmission in three different lineages. And Taizan Mazumi was also another very influential teacher. And um, so those, those three books and the, those three lineages were, were what really gave birth to Zen in the West. Um, Joko um, started to um, sit with um, Mazumi uh, Roshi. Uh, in Los Angeles. So I'll just say a little bit more about Taizen Maizumi because he's kind of like um, if Joko's my grandmother in the Dharma then uh, Maizumi would be my, my, my great grandfather in the Dharma. Um, so um, he was born in 1931 and his father was a, a very influential member of the Soto school. He was a priest in the Soto school and uh, so Maizumi and his five brothers all entered into, all became Soto priests. Uh, but because uh, during the 1940s, uh, after the Second World War, uh, Maizumi was uh, in a center which was close to some American soldiers, he learned English. And because of that fact, um, it, he was actually given transmission at the age of 24 by his father, I think, into the Soto's uh, lineage. Um, he was then asked by the Soto school to go to the United States and, and provide a priestly service to the Japanese people in the States and, um, and, and also act as a translator. So um, uh, he, um, he would have arrived in the States in the, uh, in the 70s and uh, he established this uh, uh, he studied a, a sitting group and uh, eventually um, it became um, known as the Zen Center of Los Angeles. And, um, and it started to attract a lot of Westerners. And Joko was one of those people and she's, um, she started sitting uh, at the center of Los Angeles. And, uh, 
at its height of its influence in the early 80s, the, sen the Zen center of Los Angeles had grown so much that it actually bought various um, apartment blocks and a whole street. So it covered a whole street. It was like one big uh, Zen center. And uh, there would, uh, it would be up to 100 uh, uh, practitioners living there at any one time. So it was a huge uh, and very influential school. Um, Mazumi himself um, gave Dharma transmission to about 12 people. And, and many of those became, like, like Joko, became very influential. Now the interesting thing about Mazumi is um, he was a very accomplished Zen master. And um, he had a, a very powerful presence. And, um, lots of stories about his, his kindness and his wisdom. Um, but at the height of his, uh, of his influence in 1983, there was two crises that, uh, that brought about his tragic downfall. Um, the first was that uh, rumours started to spread that he'd been having sexual relationships with a number of his, a few of his students, I'm not quite sure how many including one woman he'd given Dharma transmission to. Now, even though the, the 60s and early 70s were seen as a time of free love and sexual expressiveness, this was still seen as quite a shock to many people that he would engage in, uh, in that kind of abuse of his power relationship. And assuming himself was married, he had, uh, can't remember how many children he had, two or three children. Uh, that was another unique thing about him being a, a Zen priest living with a wife and family. And uh, so it was a, 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 this kind of violation of his family as well, one of the precepts in Zen Buddhism. And then the other crisis was about his drinking. Um, uh, people knew that he was drinking, but they thought it was in tolerable levels. But in fact, it got a little bit out of control. and. Uh, he actually voluntarily went into rehab for about four weeks um, at one time. But um, that was another crisis, another shock that hit the system. So the combination of those two uh, crises uh, led to the actual split of the, of the Zen Center. Uh, where he had some, uh, some students who stayed with him and, and, and and others broke away from him. And there was a, a big decline in the number of people attending the center, so they had to eventually have to sell a lot of the apartments that they owned, and it was reduced in size a lot. Anyway, he didn't, that was in about 90, that started happening about 1983. That really was very difficult for him, um, but he, 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 he came through it eventually, and uh, there was a number of loyal uh, people who stayed with him. And, um, however, around about in the 19, he died in 1995. Originally it was thought he died of a heart attack. He was visiting Japan, he was visiting his brothers in Japan. Um, but it later came out that it actually that particular night he'd been drinking with his brothers. And uh, then he had to go and see another brother. He caught a train, missed his stop, finally got to his other brother's place. and. Uh, was very tired and obviously still under the influence of alcohol, he took a bath. And he must have fallen asleep in the bath and he drowned. So this 
this cause of his death only came out much later because it was hidden initially. Um, but because of insurance reasons, it finally came out. So even though his, 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 his Dharma legacy is, is, is massive and it continues to influence, uh, and, uh, and, and he had an enlightened presence that was pervasive to many who knew him. But we had this, this, this human fallibility alongside that enlightened presence, um, which has become a very interesting aspect of contemporary Zen. Um, because, you know, if you go to the classical stories, the Chinese stories and the classical Japanese stories of Zen masters, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll mainly find a fairly idealized picture of them. Often choosing the time of death and sitting in Zazen and writing the death permanent and passing away. Uh, and part, and often these, these stories are often, you know, written maybe a number of years after they died. So in contemporary, in our contemporary times, we have this massive, archive or interviews and stories of other people and video footage from about Zen masters so we can no longer just have an idealized image. So, I mean, obviously it wasn't his intention, but it may be in some ways paradoxically um, that was one of his teachings about his fallibility as well. And, uh, uh, a precaution to all of us uh, to be careful about not over-idealizing Zen teachers, including myself. Um, so that that, um, that so that's that, that that first wave of Zen was an attempt by often there were there were Japanese teachers who came to the West with transplanted Japanese forms, and uh, the second wave of Zen Joko Beck's part of the second wave of, of Zen, and um, and that's that you could call the second wave a kind of Americanization of Zen practice. What we're doing here is an Australianisation of Zen practice, and because a lot of the teachers were also female, which was unusual in those days. I mean, one of the good things about Mazumi is he did, he did ordain women, and sometimes ordained women who had children, which was not done in Japan or other countries. And uh, so we had the feminisation of Zen as well, the influence of women coming in. And um, so Joko um, was. Um, uh, has a, just a little brief biography. There's not much written, there's not much biographical detail about her. Uh, but she was born in 1917 in New Jersey. She studied music at the Auburn Conservatory of Music and worked for some time as a pianist and piano teacher. She married and raised a family of four children, finally separating from her husband. Apparently her husband had uh, mental illness as well. Not quite sure of the details or the details of the separation. I couldn't find anything about that. Um, she worked after the separation. She worked as a teacher, secretary, and assistant at the University of California Chemistry Department in San Diego. She began her Zen practice in her 40s, um, and uh, she met Mazumi in Los Angeles and. Uh, when she retired from work, when she was 60, in 1977, she lived uh, permanently for a while at the Zen, Zen Center of Los Angeles. That's where Mazumi gave her Dharma transmission. At that time, you might see some photographs of her wearing her gown and her shaven head in, the, in, the style of the, in that kind of Japanese style. However, um, when the uh, these, uh, these, this, this crisis came out, um, 
So she received our transmission from Mazumi in 1978, uh, when she was 61. Um, she opened the Zen Center of San Diego in 1983, uh, age 66, where some people got together and bought a couple of little houses, two little houses side by side with no sign, and uh, Joko lived in one house and the other house was a Zendo. And um, she, um, she opened that in uh, 1983, age 66, and served as head teacher until July 2006. Um, it was about, uh, it? It was 1995 when Joko founded the uh, Ordinary Mind Zen School along with three of her Dharma heads. So, what are some of the innovations of Joko's teaching? And we'll be discussing those as we go along. But um, obviously, at the uh, what happened. Um, Mazumi had a great um, impact on her, and um, so she she grew quite disillusioned in the kind of koan practice which aimed at bringing about a um, Um, so she, 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 she um, no longer emphasized seeking these enlightenment experiences and, and developed what we now call a psychologically minded approach to Zen practice. In other words, she was really um, very uh, much more concerned about how we were in our everyday life, in our relationships with our family, with our partners, and at work. And she saw the purpose of Zen practice and, uh, as being to really focus upon those sort of self-centered reactions that would come up and uh, to use the practice of Zen um, to help us very gradually and very slowly get to know ourselves and, and gradually and very slowly through that practice get to transform ourselves rather than uh, pushing hard for an enlightenment experience. She was much more concerned about how you're getting on with your wife and husband and kids. And um, so Joker began to attract a large number of students and she published those two books, one of which I've posted out to you, uh, which were published in, one was published I think in the late 1989, the other in the early 90s. And um, she also dropped a lot of the um, Japanese forms. Um, so for example, um, she stopped wearing gowns. Um, I, don't, I don't think she even wore her rakasu. Just wore ordinary clothing. Um, she dropped a lot of the rituals, but kept a few. There's a little bit of chanting they still did. Um, some basic forms like interviews with the teacher. And, uh, and the basic sitting practice remained more or less the same. There was the sense in which you would sit for a certain amount of time, walk and sit. And she kept the notion of, a, of a doing a session or a retreat. She, her, her sessions or retreats would normally go for about five days maximum. And, uh, and they would do regular one-day sessions like we do here. 
and uh, people would come and stay at their house in San Diego during the, the retreat. Um, Joko appointed nine teachers, some of which I don't know, but she appointed two Australian teachers because she, um, there was a, a, a man called Greg Howard, who I know, and um, Greg lives in Brisbane, and uh, Greg's a musical ethnologist, and he's now retired. Um, and he would travel to see Joko once a year uh, and stay in San Diego, and um, so he, Joko actually came out to Brisbane for a few years when she was a little bit younger until the playing rights became too difficult. And uh, so she, um, Greg eventually became a Dharma successor of Joko in Brisbane. And then another guy called Jeff Dawson, who I know too. Jeff was very um, part of the formation of the Sydney Zen group back in the 70s. And uh, he eventually uh, um, broke from the Diamond Sangha and get transmission from Joko. And uh, so Jeff in, in Sydney and, and, and Greg in Brisbane are the two successes of Joko in Australia. Barry Majid, my teacher, was another successor in New York and, um, and so on. Um, in 2006, Joko moved to Arizona to be with a, one of her sons, one of her daughters. Um, and she continued to teach there until she retired as a teacher in late 2010. And she died on June 15th, 2011, at the age of 94. So that's just a bit of historical background um, to Joko.